Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Dan, everything going smoothly? As smoothly as you can expect, Paul. <laughs> a few bumps in the road here and there, but hey, doesn't that the work? Yeah, yeah. How's the uh, how's the farm doing? The, the old produce shop, as we call it. Yeah, yeah, it's good, man. There's like there's quite a bit of writing about just how, like the thousands of boats that are off the off the coast of California, waiting to get like loaded or unloaded internationally. There's just ships everywhere, a shortage of containers, a shortage of workforce, just like the whole supply chain has sort of fallen over in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope I didn't misinform. I, I made the mistake of putting everybody's times up like I actually knew the time. I don't know what time it is anywhere. Uh, was I right on yours, Dan? Yep, you're spot on, Paul. It's one o'clock in New Zealand. Okay. Uh, is Australia on daylight savings? We definitely have daylight savings. I'm, to be honest, I can't speak for, for Australia, but New Zealand, we are on daylight savings at the moment, yes. Okay. Well, I just assumed that all you people down under hung out together. <laughs> no, yeah. it's, it's, it's a nice little trip from New Zealand to Australia, Paul. Come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm not completely unaware that it is. Good to see you, Justin. Good to see you, uh, Alan, Dan. Hey, Dave. But you just got back from Liberia, right? Uh, last Thursday. Last night, I finally slept through the night. So I put up, I hope you all value, but the I put up the whole book, Trinity and the Kingdom, that you can read between now and next week. I actually, <laughs> it's not as hard as his work, Theology of Hope. I found it fairly easy going. Oh, but, yeah, but, her critique is he smuggles a romantic visions of femininity into his account. We're looking at Moltman, not because I think he has all the answers, but because I think he raises some good questions and uh, presents the problems that we traditionally might have with the Trinity. Since nobody read Moltman, let me uh, just quote him a little bit. And the problem that we have, we have traditionally in a Trinitarian system he says, if in the manner of Greek philosophy, we ask what characteristics are appropriate to deity, then we have to exclude difference, diversity, movement, and suffering from the divine nature. The divine substance is incapable of suffering. Otherwise, it would not be divine. The absolute subject of nominalist and idealist philosophy is also incapable of suffering. Otherwise, it would not be absolute, impassable, immovable, united, and self-sufficient. The deity confronts a moved, suffering, and divided world that is never sufficient for itself. For the divine substance is the founder and sustainer of this world of transient phenomena. It abides eternally and so cannot be subjected to this world's destiny. That may sound like a, a lot of abstractions, but... The way that Coakley begins her book, describing that there is an inherent problem in a overlooking of the Holy Spirit. And it's not that in the creeds that, that the creeds are necessarily problematic, 
but that historically the application of the creeds, or even in Scripture, that there is an understanding that's there in Scripture in places like John that she's addressing. If you don't know what the problem is, you may not appreciate the solution. So there's been a, a problem with the Trinity, which sounds funny. There's not really a problem with the Trinity, but there's a problem with the comprehension of the Trinity. That is that there has been a kind of subtle subordination. You know, the, the big argument was about the relation of the Father and the Son, and especially about the deity of Christ. And even in Scripture, that sometimes gets the focus. And so in places like John, the Logos of John, you look at that prologue of John, uh, it's about the Father and the Son. And then later on, you know, you have the Holy Spirit, Christ breathes on them, and, the, and there's the coming of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit is sometimes portrayed as kind of a subsequent or consequent part of the Trinity, reliant upon the Father and the Son. This, this all has practical, immediate application. Bear with the abstractions, because the abstractions have had terrible consequences. And that's part of what her book is about, right? That this focus, then, on the Father and the Son has, in a sense, left out the experiential. That is that we have, and this is the significance of Romans chapter 8, that in Romans chapter 8, there is this tri Trinitarian depiction. It's one of the clearest depictions of the work of the Trinity, but it's there in the, the depiction of prayer that each person of the Trinity is realized and recognized experientially in a kind of contemplative prayer in which God is answering himself, the Spirit is searching the heart and the mind, and there is this intercommunion and intercommunication. And so I see her book, and, and she's tapping into a history of focus on, especially, you know, if we take Romans 8 as a kind of key, I think a key to the rest of Scripture, but also a key historically, that we're going to run into to certain historical figures that are going to take that Romans 8 passage as primary. Uh, the experiential aspect to it, the prayer aspect to it. And also, Paul is freely playing with gender throughout Romans 7 and 8. And of course, we might think, oh, we can do away with that part of it, or we can, you know, in some way subordinate the role of women, which tends to happen both East and West, that the practice, uh, there is a kind of practice of the subordination of women, that, that, I think, has an immediate effect. Paul, you know, in the, in the beginning of the chapter of seven, he uses the situation of a woman who might consort with another man. A reading of that is, well, you know, she has a, a conflict between the one she would consort with, and if her husband is alive, between her husband and her lover. And of course, if her husband has died, then there's no problem consorting. I mean, we're talking sex here, but it's also love. And I think what Paul, Paul is not really concerned to talk about sex and gender there. He's using that as a kind of metaphor of the problem of the law. That is that if the, the husband is alive, he's representative of the law. And if he's alive, 
then her attitude might be, well, the law doesn't cover true love, you know, in quotes, or my true self or my true, who I truly am, cannot be covered by the norms of society. Another way of saying this is that my immediate experience takes precedent over the norms of society or, or the, the norms of the law. That is, don't I have uh, an immediate experience of myself that in some way I read as primary by its very nature? You know, this is Woody Allen's comment when he married his adopted daughter. People said, you know, why, why would you do that? He said, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. That is, the transgression of it is almost uh, a sign of its authenticity. So that's the sin problem. But then he moves into the answer to the problem. And there he says, you have died with Christ. You've been joined with Christ. He's still using sexual metaphor. But the metaphor now is that it's a change in gender. And of course, that's the, the picture throughout the New Testament is that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is, you know, the Christ is the groom. And not only is there a change in gender, but then there in, in seven and then in eight, he's going to talk about birth. He's going to talk, you know, about conception, birth, and the, the groanings, suffering. And this is definitive then of love. That kind of sets up that the reason I think that section of scripture is important in this discussion, all the elements that we're going to discuss in the class come together. First of all, there's clear Trinitarianism. It's one of the clearest depictions in chapter eight of the roles of the Trinity. There's also the idea that we arrive at this Trinitarianism through human experience. That is the way that we often, the way that I began the class, I, I saw you got your eyes were already glazing over because that's the way we usually talk about God. We talk about God in the manner of Greek philosophy, and we talk about the unmoved mover, or we talk about God as being incapable of suffering. Even if you're not familiar with this kind of understanding, you're going to get that in various pictures of God and in our relationship to God. But what we're getting in Romans 8 and what Coakley is doing is saying we know who God is because of our experience of who God is in Christ, and this experience of the Father and the Son that's given to us is the experience of the Holy Spirit. Am I saying that too strong? That is the, the love of God that we have access to, the experiential realm of who God is, is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is often depicted as that most mystical, most distant part of the Trinity. But in this understanding, and I think this understanding accords with other places in the New Testament, actually the Holy Spirit is the one that we have immediate access to. The Holy Spirit pertains exactly to our experience, to the love of God, to human desire, to prayer, to suffering, to the hope that we have. That is the realm of the Spirit. Think of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Those are an experiential reality. Now, not necessarily in, in experientialism, per se, or in individualism, per se, but it is certainly experience, and it certainly does pertain to the individual. But it's not to leave out the realm of the church and the corporate 
identity. Romans 5.5, 5, she uses that as well. You know, love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the pouring out of the Spirit is a pouring out on flesh. You know, everything the Holy Spirit does is, is involved in, in embodiment, involved in flesh. The Holy Spirit is the one through whom Mary conceives. The Holy Spirit is the one through whom Christ is incarnate. The Holy Spirit is the one who is there at the, you know, in the resurrection. The Holy Spirit is there in baptism. The Holy Spirit is there in the, the communion. The Holy yeah. Spirit is there in the embodied. So the Holy Spirit is poured out on flesh. That's precisely not the way we tend to talk about the Holy Spirit. We tend to talk about a kind of disembodiment. And we've lost then, when we do that then, there, there is a, a, a subordination. I mean, we, we lose, in a sense, uh, not to overstate it, but I'm afraid we lose the experiential reality of what it means to be a Christian. She says it's the chastening of desire and our conforming to the image of the Son through our adoption as sons of God. We cry, Abba, Father. It's that thing that, you know, you know you're connected. It is that feeling of connectedness. Paul, I was just going to say that as far as immediate experience goes, that an argument could be made that, you know, even consciousness itself is a participation uh, in the spirit of the Lord, whereby we even are able to, you know, from a Christian perspective, right? That, that even consciousness itself is a participation in the life of God that gives rise to our whole discourse about the father and the son and about everything else. Yeah. Aquinas uh, and people like that call it the divine light. Like if someone throws a rock over your head and you look back and go, where'd that come from? There's that aspect you're talking about. I did put up an article on the, the spirit as showing forth in the very DNA of human creation. You, know, you think of Genesis that the spirit hovers over the face of the waters. The spirit from the very beginning shows forth then in the, the physicality, in the created order. And so what you're saying, Matt, what you're saying, Justin, yeah, that, that we're suffused with the spirit, with the grace of God. The problem is not that we can't apprehend this thing, but the problem is that we're cut off from this reality. Yeah, I mean, uh, from a Christian standpoint, anything that has life is already a participation in the spirit, right? I, I was looking at John 1 when you were talking about that earlier. And even there, you know, that, and the word was with God. Well, what's the with, right? Like maybe there's a case there to be made, you know, in some way for the, for the Holy Spirit. Maybe one way to put it, Paul, is classically in Trinitarian theology, it's where one of the persons are, the other two are there as well. So if you say something about, you know, if the spirit dwells in you, that means the father and son dwell in you as well, this sort of thing. She seems to be saying, well, you need to take seriously that and not leave out the spirit. We have immediate access to who God is in, in what you're just saying. If we have, if all the persons of the Trinity are all followed, you know, one where, where one is, they all are. Then when we experience the love of God in community, in communion, in conversation, I think we need to name that thing. That that is that connectedness that we have with other people, that connectedness that we can feel. I don't I think we shouldn't hesitate to call it a feeling. There is an experience to which we are going to assign an ontological reality 
and which the rest of the world is going to say they may have a very similar experience set of experiences the problem is not that they don't have access to these experiences of love of you know that god is you know there in the world but the the problem is that they're going to be duped about or deluded about what the nature of true experience is and so part of the issue you know and it's not primarily even an, an issue of god because of course and this is the reason i was doing the boring stuff in the beginning because in a classic theology you know in a classic discussion of the trinity suddenly you get it talking about causes and effects and how the the one interacts with the other and suddenly we've we've turned to the realm of what we can't experience directly but we pretend like we can rationally talk about what we don't have experiential access to one way to talk about it is classically it's the way of discovery versus the way of teaching you know what i mean where the way of teaching is you go from one down to the many sort of thing in a sense of you start with your propositions and where you're going to go where you're going to take your class but the way of discovery is like the councils over history of their discerning and and uh talking and discovering and and you know to come to this doctrine of christ all the way to two wills and the holy spirit it takes you know hundreds of years and we don't usually teach it that way from that perspective we usually teach from like the creed <laughs> downwards right, right. sort of thing so it's a i guess it, you could call it it's a subjective angle versus an objective angle in a way you're beginning with the subject and your experience as as a way into the trinity versus saying well let's begin with the the explicit doctrine of the trinity and then go and talk about it from there yeah that's good that's good because it is a uh, on the way we're entering into this truth and of course it's not that the creeds may not have stated it in an orthodox fashion but the realization of that orthodoxy continues to unfold historically is that offensive to everybody that we can make progress theologically we may be able to articulate what a orthodox understanding looks like but i think that clearly the realization of that unfolds and that's what you're describing justin yeah well she begins with problems about uh, gender sexuality these kind of cultural issues he she calls it you know a crisis or crises that christian theology hasn't dealt with or that doesn't talk about at all in a sense what you were talking about earlier is what they lack is a trinitarian interpretation they don't have access to that which through you know a trinitarian interpretation of all these things you can come to a better understanding of them you know in short through desire god's desire and our desire for god so when you look at these gender sexuality and issues of the self you know she's like well that's what they're lacking and that that's what she said that's what i'm going to do i'm going to bring all these up in a trinitarian ontology of desire yeah, and she she touches this lightly, but I mean, we I think we all know the church is in a maybe not just the church, the whole culture of the world. We're in a sexual crisis 
you know, the, the, the most famous of this is the Roman Catholics. It's maybe best known for a kind of a twofold reason that in Roman Catholicism, they had a coordinated cover-up. But then, of course, when it's exposed, they also have a coordinated exposure. That is that you can count the numbers of victims and you can count the numbers of priests because the Roman Catholics coordinated the cover-up and then they actually have the numbers that it's there. It's not that Protestantism is any less in crisis. No, look at the Methodist church right now. They're splitting over this issue. Many, many denominations, they split along these lines. And I mean just abuse, sexual abuse. Oh, and I just mean issues of questions of gender and homosexuality and priests or preachers, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, so we've got abuse problem. We've got questions of gender problem. There is this crisis. And her point is well taken. You know, she's just asking basic questions. What is a human being? And who, who is God? And of course, the point is that in some way we've gotten that wrong, that we've imagined that we can leave gender out of the answer. And of course, the, the point is that we only know who God is in as much as we are gendered. That may be a strange way to put it, but it's in our maleness and femaleness. It's in human desire. It's in human sexuality. That is not an obstacle to knowing God. That is the mediating reality of our understanding of who God is. So that a sexual crisis is an indicator, I mean, in an obvious sense, that you're not straight on who God is. Just read the Confessions by Augustine. You'll get there. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I'm not sure Augustine should be our model here. No, I'm not saying. I'm just saying that that book is it's like a sexual crisis that leads into God. Although she's fairly balanced in this, you know, Augustine is going to denigrate marriage. He's going to denigrate sex. Not that that's the whole story on Augustine, but in the Eastern church, and especially she's going to rely later on in the book on uh, Dionysius, the Areopagite. He comes under several names, Denny's the Areopagite. We'll just call him PSD. I think that we've all been trained. Is it Nigren? I I think we may have actually used the book when I was an undergraduate on, you know, love and the nature of love. You mean agape and eros? Yeah. Eros and agape? Yeah. That we've been been trained to say, well, there's these different kinds of love. There's brotherly love. There's erotic love. And then there's the love of God, agape, and the never the twain shall meet. And, of course, her point is, and she's taking this from Dionysius, eros is agape. The distinction need not be made. And, of course, the biblical literature on this is the Song of Solomon. Also, I think, Romans, Romans 7 and 8. You put those two things together, and you realize that's the very language that Paul is using. Here, he also, you know, in Ephesians, he's going to talk about a man shall leave his father and mother, he's referring to Genesis, and cleave unto his wife, but I'm talking about, he says, Christ and the church, and this is a great mystery. That is that sexuality, gender, is the framework in which we apprehend who God is and who we are in relationship to God. So that apart from human desire, the the saying by Lacan, 
never give way on your desire. Of course, the way he means that, I think it's wrong, because what he does mean is, because he's an atheist, he can't conceive of desire as being accorded a kind of divine reality. But when you set it in the context that she's describing it, I think Lacan is right. The desire, you know, he's equating, and of course, again, because he's an atheist, he's wrong. Uh, if you put it in a different context, the desire of God expressed in the Holy Spirit is connected directly to life. You don't give way on desire because desire is life. That's a kind of dangerous thing to say because it, it's so, it could be easily misunderstood. Would, would it help if you said death is in there as well? Because if you talk about sin as misdirected desire, sin that leads to death, our misdirected desire. Right. That's right. why it, there's such a such a, a lot of talk and patristics and stuff about ordered desire. Like sin is disordered desire. You've got your desires out of order. Yeah, that's Romans 7, 7, that, you know, I did not know what sin was until I encountered thou shalt not desire, thou shalt not covet. And so sin is misordered desire. Sin is mischanneled desire. It's not that we squelch desire. Uh, it's not that we get rid of it. It's, to, it's that it's transfigured in Christ. Our desire is transfigured, right? We don't do away with it. We don't, like you said, we don't quench it, but it's a desire for God that, as Justin was rightly saying, is disordered towards what I would just say the finite. It's really a desire for the infinite. And what I think sin kind of boils down to or uh, because of death is a disordered desire for the finite, right? That That is just sort of a frustrated by nature. It's sort of a frustrated desire. I loved in your blog, I mean, the way that Dionysius pictures it as a, an endless circle for the good, from the good, in the good, and to the good, with unerring revolution, never varying its center or direction, perpetually advancing and remaining and returning to itself. That's brilliant. I mean, that's beautiful. And it even, it reminded me of uh, Apectasis, you know, Gregory of Nyssa's notion of a kind of infinite stretching forth. And that maybe that's that's what this whole, what that's what life is. That's what this class is. That's what theology is. It's a moving from glory to glory, uh, an infinite sort of stretching out of desire. It's never, it's never fulfilled because the object of our desire or possibly even the subject of our desire is the infinite itself. I was, I was thinking of this from Sunday's lectionary texts. James and John asked Jesus to sit at his right and left hand at his, at his throne. And Jesus says, you know, so they ask for power, like ultimate power, the, the highest power they can think to ask for. Because, <laughs> you, know, you know, they're good Jews. They're not going to blaspheme and ask to be God. They're like, well, can, can we have the right and left hand? And Jesus is like, no, you know, he's trying to redirect their desire. He says, who is first? The greatest in the kingdom is the servant. For the son of man came to serve and not be served, but to become the slave, uh, servant of all sort of thing. So I think a lot of that in the gospels, what Jesus is doing is in Mark, especially the disciples are always doing something. He's trying to redirect their desires to reshape them into the desires of the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And that's the uh, turn that Moltmann is going to take, that he's going to focus on Christ and the passion of Christ and the suffering of Christ upon the self-emptying 
And what we mean by self-emptying, you know, this is uh, Rowan Williams that's also very good on this, that he, Rowan Williams is running down Bonhoeffer. I'm doing a little bit of Bonhoeffer and Kierkegaard in the class as we go, because they're also taking, you know, Bonhoeffer, we don't normally think of Bonhoeffer as talking about the Holy Spirit. In fact, he doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit very much. But in his uh, lectures on Christology, and that's that I think this discussion, we all we need the Christocentric understanding that you're going to get in both Bart and Bonhoeffer to arrive at a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit. So the, the other thing, the thing I'm not doing, you know, I began I, when your eyes were glazing over describing, you know, Trinity <laughs> is the unmoved mover and he's apophatic and, you know. That's all good stuff. It's, it's Greek. By that, that's not in and of itself uh, a condemnation. But all, that's all not. theology is contextual, right? I mean, that's, that's not. In other words, the way that we're approaching this is through Christ. And we're not talking about Christ in terms of his pre a pre-existent Christ. We're talking about the incarnate Christ. That is, how do we know who God is? I think that there is an understanding, and this is, I, I think, the realm that Coakley is working in, that we know who God is in Christ, not uh, anyone other than the Christ that we encounter in Jesus. That's a different way of doing theology. That's a different way of talking about the Trinity. That is the counter. If you read the Moltmann material, you know, Moltmann for me was kind of a halfway point. But of course, Moltmann will go bad on us. He's going to become Hegelian on us. I sometimes think you all need to, to be indoctrinated with Moltmann so you can be unindoctrinated with him. That you need to see, okay, there is this focus on the passion of Christ and the suffering of God. And that is very much interconnected with the love of God. I don't know how you get the love of God apart from suffering, the problem of evil. Now, where Moltmann goes wrong and where Hegel goes wrong and the people they're using is they're going to read the necessity of evil as part of who God is. They're going to read this, the necessity of history as who God is. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the nature of love, that there is this overflowing of love in the person of God. There is this Trinitarian love that gives us creation, that overflows in the incarnation, and that then gives us that that, that is the work of the Spirit. That then takes account of human suffering. Take account may be too strong, uh, but it at least, in other words, God is not removed from the problem of evil, from the problem of suffering. But what we see in the passion of Christ is that in Christ, he is bearing the suffering. And that is a part of the love of God that we have in Christ. We need the Christocentric focus in order to get to the primacy. I don't know if primacy is the right word, but for the moment, we'll use it, of the Holy Spirit. She, she talks about how in most charismatic groups, they're not Trinitarians, and so that's problematic. That with the sexual crisis, we have a kind of Holy Spirit crisis, and how that all interplays, you know, it's not the, an improper focus on the Spirit as you get in some Pentecostalism or some charismatic movement is an answer to this. Let me give you a quote from Moltmann. That is, Moltmann goes through this introduction. 
He says, okay, we've got the Greek theology. He says, does this not mean that down to the present day, Christian theology has failed to develop a consistent concept of God, and that instead, for reasons which still have to be investigated, it has rather adopted the metaphysical tradition of Greek philosophy, which it understood as natural theology and saw as its own foundation. Now, if that is an ag- exaggeration, it's not too much of an exaggeration. The, the, when we talk, start talking about the Trinity, our tendency is to talk about, oh, well, let me draw some circles for you, and I'll show you mathematically how this works out. Let me talk about the abstractions of who God is. And the whole approach here is, uh, that's a misconception of who God is, if you think you can approach God on that basis. And so the place that we see God is in Christ. This is again from Moltmann. For the person who can only see Christ's passion as the suffering of the good man from Nazareth, that is, if you remove the deity from the humanity, then you're going to misunderstand who Christ is. God is inevitably bound to become the cold, silent, unloved heavenly power. But that would be the end of the Christian faith. But I don't think orthodoxy ever had a view of God like that, really. That's not like an orthodox view of God, an unloving God, you know. What, John 17, even before the foundation of the world, Father, you loved me. I mean, this isn't too far off where the other day I was having a conversation with people about penal substitutionary atonement. And, you know, they wanted to talk about the wrath of God being poured out on the sun, on the cross. And I said, point to me in scripture where it says that the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus in our place. This is not there in in reform circles, I guess, last 500 years. It's just like the default reading for a lot of these evangelicals. And I mean, in Catholic theology and stuff, you'd say Jesus offers himself up as a, a sacrifice of love, not as a replacement that takes on the wrath of God in your place. And I think even Moltmann would agree with your statement there. That is that it's not that orthodoxy hasn't affirmed the love of God, but in a misfocused Trinitarianism, what happens is there's a tension there in understanding the passion of Christ that is worked out in strange places like origin very early on. And so she turns to origin. She turns to Gregory of Nyssa. That is that in these are they Orthodox, Matt? Origin, or is he a heretic? Oh, I think I, you know. You know, I think he's Orthodox. <laughs> yes. This is a Moltmann quote again. If God were incapable of suffering in every respect, then he would also be incapable of love. He would at most be capable of loving himself, but not of loving another as himself, as Aristotle puts it. I think that sometimes we are constricted in discussions of the Trinity to an understanding in which we we know he's loving, but we're not quite sure how. And of course, the point is, the how is the wrong question, and that's her point, that in Christ we encounter the love of God. We don't need to explain the how. We need to to focus on the who, that in Christ we know, as John will put it, God is love. And John then describes an ethic and experiential reality based upon that fact about God that we know in Christ. In other words, the abstractions of the Trinity, though they may be orthodox and though they may, it may create a tension, the way that we, we get around the kind of 
deadening of who God is, is this Christocentric focus, and dare we say, a prayer-based focus. That's what she's doing. In other words, that we're going to come to who God is on the basis of our experience of God, and our here, it is a corporate and individual, that who Christ is, is for us, is for us corporately and for us individually. And what that for us means, you know, this is Bonhoeffer's description. I don't know anything. My experience of Christ is not apart from my experience of myself. That is that we know those two things together, and we should not presume to extract the one from the other, so that we do have direct access experientially in prayer, in human desire, in the realms that of our experiential reality. That's where God meets us. It's not that he simply meets us one time historically in Christ, but that we have a continual opening. Let me give you a quote from Origen. He, the Redeemer, descended to earth out of sympathy for the human race. He took our sufferings upon himself before he endured the cross. Indeed, before he even deigned to take our flesh upon himself. For if he had not felt these sufferings beforehand, he would not have come to partake of our human life. First of all, he suffered, then he descended and became visible to us. What is this passion which he suffered for us? It is the passion of love. And the, the Father himself, the God of the universe, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy, does he not also suffer in a certain way? He's saying the Father suffers with the Son. Or know you not that when he, when he can, condescends to men, suffers human suffering? For the Lord thy God has taken thy ways upon him as a man doth bear his son. So God suffers our ways as the Son of God bears our sufferings. Even the Father is not incapable of suffering. When we call upon him, he is merciful and feels our pain with us. He suffers a suffering of love, becoming something which because of the greatness of his nature, he cannot be and endures human suffering for our sakes. Don't you love Origen, Matt? I love him. It's beautiful. And here is a very early affirmation of the suffering of the Father. I don't know how you get around it, or that you would want to get around it, unless you get caught up in these discussions of the Trinity that are in some way are going to try to save the Father from the suffering of the Son. I mean, Jesus is fairly clear, but I mean, I'm working through this. As you know, we don't want to be, uh, we're not Hegelian, right? So we don't, we, the one, the thing that we want to guard against is to say that God is in no way dependent upon the created order. You know, it's, it's in no way determinative of his being, right? So we'd, we would want to affirm that on the one hand. On the other hand, we would want to say that, I, I'm still thinking about Dustin's, this is a great reminder that, that we can't really talk about the one without talking about the other two, right? Like that's the nature of the Trinity. So uh, that in Christ, you know, he says things like, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So apparently whatever it is that Christ is going through, uh, he's going through it with the father and uh, with the Holy spirit. Right. So it's interesting that the, obviously Christ was full of the Holy spirit. Um, you said earlier that Bonhoeffer, you know, he doesn't talk about, that much about the Holy Spirit, but of course Bonhoeffer was a Holy Spirit, you know, and so I, it's making me think about um, the acquisition of the Holy Spirit. I guess I'm I'm wondering about 
it's mysterious like that, right? Because because obviously, in some sense, we in our immediate experience, we have access to the spirit. We live and move and have our being in the spirit. I know for myself, I I would like to acquire uh, the Holy Spirit to to a to a sort of higher degree. You know, my ascent, my ascent to God will never be uh, complete because He's you know He's infinite, right? But but it's interesting what Origin is saying there, right? Because it sounds that's not the way that's not the way we normally talk about the father <laughs> right and his point is if you don't talk about the father that way then you can't talk about the love of the father that's moltman's point i'm quoting origin in moltman's book yeah i'm not ready to say you have to talk about suffering like you have to suffer to love i'm not on board with that one for sure but classically you would say persons suffer not essences matt so right. what you were trying to articulate only persons can suffer essences cannot suffer it's impossible so it would be silly to say that then essence suffers because it just it just doesn't happen can't happen origin's point is that the suffering of love the compassion which is at the, at the heart of mercy and pity that that necessarily entails the passion the merciful the pitiful person participates in the suffering of another he takes the other's sufferings on himself. He suffers for others. For origin, this suffering is divine suffering. It is the suffering of God who bears the world by bearing its burdens. It is the suffering of the Father who, in giving up his own son, Romans 8.32, suffers the pain of redemption. Yeah, and suffer, tradition means to undergo change. So if you say, you know, that's that's the issue going on. If you say, like, an essence suffers, it would undergo change, but we say God doesn't change. So that, you know, it's it's trying to make distinctions in a way to say, well, God doesn't change, but, you know, as a, the person undergoes suffering, but, you know, so that's this that's, whole thing about. I mean, that's that's right, Justin. I, I agree there. It's, that's what I was saying earlier about there's a deep mystery here, right? That's beyond my, certainly my ability to understand. But the, of course, we believe that God existed in perfect love before uh you know the creation of the world uh, in perfect trinitarian love so in other words god doesn't need evil because that's what we're ultimately saying is that well in some way evil it, it constitutes the being of god well we would never want to say that right never. we just can't say that we you know i won't so but that with that but but with that being said there's still a deep mystery here because obviously christ is saying if you see me you've seen the father Moltman is going to go too far with this, and maybe you're, you're kind of seeing that. On the other hand, I think that where Coakley, what Coakley is describing, she's setting up a, a, a primacy of love yes. in the Holy Spirit. The focus then, uh, a kind of Christocentric focus, lies behind what she's doing. And part of that Christocentric focus, we cannot be drawn off of it. And I think that our traditional way of talking about God is, in fact, going to draw us off of her main point, that what we can say about God, we know in Christ. And everything other than that, in other words, that we do tend to talk about God in Greek, apophatic, we do away with the passion of who God is. If that's where you want to focus, that is a different focus than where she's taken it made me think she was talking about writings on the Holy Spirit. I know before I had seen 
not until the 20th century is there really much writing on the Holy Spirit at all. You get a lot of writings on, called like on Jesus or on the Trinity or on God, you know, on all these subjects. But not really till the 20th century do people start writing books on the Holy Spirit, this sort of thing, throughout the ages of the church. So, I mean, some people that. call some people call the 20th century like the century of the Holy Spirit because of the the huge change in focus that's involved. I mean, like you know, Vatican II, all the emphasis on the Holy Spirit of anonymous Christians and Rahner and, and stuff like this, and. Christianity's interaction with world religions. It's all about, you know, how is the spirit involved in other religions? Uh, well, I think her, her point is, in fact, you do have a long tradition of talking about the Holy Spirit in the mystics. Well, I, I agree. I just meant like a book titled. Like they don't end up with these big books that are just like on the Holy Spirit until recently. And so her point is that you have, in other words, this we'll come to this when we begin to talk about Ernst Trelch, uh, which you may find a little bit boring. But her she, point is that she wrote her dissertation on him, by the way. Right, and so the the picture of a church type, a, a sect type, and the 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 mystical type, the place that the the theol, in other words, those three realms are three different sociological realms that may be in tension. And so I think there is a slight tension in the discussion that we're having, and I think she's well aware of that. This isn't the way we normally talk about God with this focus on the Holy Spirit or with this focus on human desire, but there is certainly a long tradition of this understanding, and her point is to bring it together. I, I can speak, Eric. I'll, I'll just speak experientially from what I, you were gone, but this spoke very, this spoke like straight to my heart, <laughs> this book so far, very personal for me. So, and I'm really interested in reading it all the way through theologies with that talk about experience in this way, kind of speak to me or, I mean, it's just, I said Augustine earlier, cause he has that famous line about our hearts are restless until they rest in God. You know, that, that translation she's talking about, like, you can feel that sort of thing. The thing that drew me into Lonergan was his stuff on conversion, and he's always hitting on Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God poured into our hearts. Uh, you know, our conversions to God, uh, religious conversion is what he's talking about there, like the Holy Spirit descending on us and changing our lives. And we're like Gregory of Nyssa, the life of Moses, you know, it focuses on the experience, and I can really connect with that personally. The danger is that we don't make that connection. I don't know. But for me, like, that's what drew me into Christianity, drew me into a relationship with Christ right. in the first place. Me was even like frustrated sexual desire and experience of the love of God. That's what brought me into the church and made me seriously committed to Christ. You know, when I read these, I'm like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think she's hitting a note tended that it tends not to be hit in a kind of churchly you know, in, in the sociological terms, a church-type theology in which there is a focus. And here, if you turn uh, again, you know, I'm thinking of Bonhoeffer and Kierkegaard, that, that we're talking about a, a, a failed Christianity, a failed church. I, I think we have to acknowledge that. And I think that a book like this is at least helpful in saying then where 
the various failures may lie. And by that, I'm not putting the onus on any particular group or any particular church, but we just all have to acknowledge, hey, this thing didn't work out real well in Nazi Germany. Hey, this <laughs> thing, uh, you know, we can just start naming uh, the failures of the church. And of course, the failure that we're all part of, I'm afraid, in, in our own period, especially now you people in New Zealand and Australia are preserved from it, luckily. Uh, but in this country, there is a huge failure of the church. Mexico, I'm not sure. You seem to have a lot of problems down there. Trump-like problems. We're in the midst of a failure, and I think we need to be able to name this thing and not draw back from saying that uh, in a point-blank fashion. This might be kind of a silly question, but what is it that we have failed to achieve? What's the goal? What is it that we have failed to do? We miss God. You mean like just we just we've just gotten into propositions like she's talking about in the book where she's like, you know, Christianity just becomes a propositional thing as opposed to a lived way of life. I think so. Yeah, that the uh, the practice is missing. The uh, discipleship is missing in a sad way. The love of God. I mean, that, that can't be right. I mean, how can you miss the love of God? It's just we're suffused with it. And yet. In a really bad theology, I think that it mitigates against the reality of the love of God, that we're taught that God, in fact, is quite an evil character. But I also think it's difficult. The call is really hard to be authentic to the call of Jesus. You know, he says, love as I loved you. That's a difficult call, and not a lot of people want to do that, actually. Like, you know, we talk about why aren't people in church or why aren't they committed? It's like, I just, I'm, let me read this passage where Jesus says, if you have, if you're rich, you will have, you will not enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> so we're like, ah, you know, we don't, Jesus didn't really mean it. We're all good in Australia. No, no problems at all. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, it does seem a lot better. No, not really. <laughs> no, same challenges. I have compared it to, and I know it's an extreme comparison. I have compared the situation in the United States to that of Nazi Germany. I think that it, there are parallels, and the parallels exist in the church. And I think it pertains then to a kind of heady propositionalism. The picture of this direct experience of the love of God and the experiential reality, the affirmation of this experiential reality is part of what's missing. I think, she, she, at least in the book, she seems to be saying that the problem is about desire. And I guess that's the insidious thing about whatever you want to talk, uh, globalism, capitalism. Most of us in the church, whatever, our desires are more conformed to that, that, that way of the world than the way of Christ. Yeah, that a misplaced, a misdirected, a mischanneled notion like, of desire. And like, maybe what do we I don't... actually want? What do I desire? Do I want to be a servant in the way of Jesus? Would I actually wish for that, desire for that? <laughs> or do I want to wish for the seats of power? Which ones are people actually wishing for? Justin was talking about the difficulty, the high calling um, of Christ. And I just put in the chat there the quote from Jesus from Luke 14. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. <laughs> 
So it's like it goes back to that whole question of, uh, I guess, of desire, right? Of, of, of all that we have. What, what is it that we want? What is it that we desire? This thing ain't easy. Yeah. Um, like so- this, it's from page 16. She says, uh, once it is, but once it is granted that a particular set of bodily and spiritual practices, both individual and liturgical, so, you know, communal, are the precondition. So like you're saying, Paul, practice is the precondition. Uh, for Trinitarian thinking of a deep sort. And who's getting your congregation to think about the Trinity at all, let alone in a deep way? Um, She says, one is already admitting that the task of theology on this view cannot simply be conformed to the world and its current philosophical or cultural presumptions without a remaining excess of meaning and an implicit critique of that world. Simply put, and conversely, if one is resolutely not engaged in the practices of prayer, contemplation, and worship, then there are certain sorts of philosophical insight that are unlikely, if not impossible, to become available to one. And, and she goes on to say that's why, you know, theology in the secular university doesn't really make much sense. What do you guys think? She says, she says desire is more fundamental than sex. Desire is more fundamental than gender. Those are like two of her big propositions. Yeah, so fundamentally, we're creatures of desire, right? I mean, like just more the most fundamental prop. In other words, like we yearn uh, fundamentally just, for God. J- yeah, you just said it. Well, you said creature. You're a creature. She's talking about the one and the two as symbolic. You know that symbolicness of the creator mm-hmm. and the creature. Yeah. What do you What do you guys think um, with desire? The fact that church for so long has been so afraid of desire has tried to repress it or ignore it or deny it. I wonder in many ways where people outside the church in their pursuit of desire, even if it's been wonky and misdirected, might be closer to God sometimes as they chase after those desires than the church, because the church, at least the church is unfamiliar with, we're just so afraid of it, right? We so don't talk we, about sex. We don't talk about it at all. Yeah. You know, so are you equipping people to live a good life? if you suppress their desire yeah. sort of thing, instead yeah. of we're acknowledge af- we're it. We're afraid of it. We're always so she, afraid of it. Yeah. yeah. And she's saying, well, you know, you obviously don't suppress it, but, you know, interpret, help them understand their desire within a yeah. Trinitarian context of what yeah. God is doing in their lives. Can, yeah. can we do that? When's the last that's what, we heard so, a, a sermon series on the Song of Solomon, right? But it was the most popular commentary in the early church. It was what the early church was. They were writing commentaries on the commentaries of the Song of Solomon. And jokingly, we can say it was a bunch of men. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. But I mean, I often think no wonder most, most people in Australia would never come to church to find their, where their desires are pointing them to because we're just a bunch of repressed fearful people who don't want to talk about sex just like don't do it stay away uh, from it it's wrong or, or the wisdom of society is follow your heart you know every disney movie ever whatever you know you know like paul said earlier the heart wants what the heart wants so you know yeah just know. follow your desires but of course we know scripture says you know the heart is deceitful above all things yeah, that's Paul's, you know, Paul's the, the, in the, the classes that we've done before, we've been going through Paul's book. And it's like, unfortunately, we desire death, right? Like, it's so, perverse, I mean, we have a perverse desire, right? That, that manifests itself as sort of a, as a death 
you know, like a, a covenant with death instead of a covenant with God. We, you know, and then sort of fulfilling our desires uh, in that manner. We we love death. The objective way, classically, to talk about it on the objective side is, you know, the good, the beautiful, the true. God is all these things. And so, you know, when we desire truth, we're desiring God. Mm. When we desire what's good, we're desiring God. When we desire what's beautiful, we're desiring God. Our desires are leading and directing us to God because that's what we're created for. I mean, that's what she says, right? Uh, as Christians, we have that uh, creation, fall, redemption arc that we understand ourselves and our desires within. And, and you know, secular whatever people they don't have that narrative how do they how how do you understand yourself within that i can i mean i can understand we got like sixth seventh grade kids in our middle school here who are like non-binary and you know all this kind of stuff in texas they just recently said the kids can stay in whatever cabin gender they identify themselves as and so he's like the (laughs) the camp director quit yeah in opposition to it so you know these are real practical issues we're dealing with or you know of course wars and churches over homosexuality and all these other things paul i don't know if you remember our uh, our book we read a couple years ago uh with deb hirsch Mm -hmm. um she's an australian yeah and um, uh i actually sat in a lecture of hers and for the longest time i'm like is she orthodox or not? You know, she was talking about sexuality and different things. And, and then uh, I realized she was, but she talked, uh, this actually wasn't in her lecture that I was listening to, but this was a a book of hers, but she was comparing God to an orgasm. And I had never heard that before. And, and, you know, um, but shocked. Yeah. But I felt like, I feel like maybe what we're reading some here, uh, you know, as, as we talk about desires and different things like that, that we have shied away as, as a church, right, from, from that kind of terminology. And I don't know if it's the uh, Puritan influence on us or what it might be. But anyways, uh, fascinating. I don't know that I'm going to preach a sermon um, this anytime soon using orgasm. But anyhow. I tell, I tell you what, David, Australians would come in to hear that sermon. They would definitely <laughs> come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What brought all the people into the mega church was like, oh, the pastor was sleeping on a bed with his wife on the roof of the church. You know, it's all these ridiculous publicity stunt things. But I, I was just thinking, I, she's Anglican, I, so she's not going to really thump on it. But, you know, I mean, she is praying the Book of Common Prayer, you know, every day. Yeah. And, yeah. and she and she's got... Uh, ordered services liturgy you know and a lot of these people will talk about how the liturgy is designed to shape and redirect your desires towards god like have you tried any of this on your congregation uh justin like i've said I, i'm preaching through mark and okay. and a lot of it is like jesus is shaping the desires of this so i asked the question like what is the church jesus is building like, what is the community he's forming through this teaching sort of thing? We took a, you know, when we looked at the divorce text in Mark and then about the little children, I was seeing in the divorce text, you know, he goes back to Genesis and says, in the image of God, he created them equally. And then he has a part where women can divorce men and men can divorce mm-hmm. women. You know, that's e- equality in their community. 
And then children, you know, the disciples are like, get these kids out of here. And Jesus is like, no, he props the kids up in the very center of the community and says, you know, so, you know, women were on the outskirts, children are on the outskirts and he brings them. What kind of church is Jesus building? He's building a church where the excluded and their family, you, know, you have to reshape your family structure. You got to rethink even how you treat your wives, how you treat women, how you treat kids in the kingdom. I did. I did a sermon on Sunday on uh, the, comparing Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a natural uh, picture because the woman at the well has a thirst problem, a desire problem, desire problem. And Jesus doesn't. He just redirects her. Nicodemus seems to be stifled. You know, he can't even conceive of discussion of being born in the water and the spirit. You know, he tells him you got to be born again. But she just seems to naturally enter into belief. And the the point is that, in other words, her desire didn't in any way pose an obstacle to that belief, but in fact was the medium for understanding how here is one who could full, you know quench my thirst. Yeah, that's good. The woman at the well has a name, you know, Fotina. <laughs> you know, she's a saint. She's a woman with a name. In some churches. So your tradition says. <laughs> and and you can go to that well today and hear the story. And buy a buy a little vial of water. <laughs> yeah. And I think Nicodemus is the opposite, Matt, with the picture of, you know, you picture of a here's a here's a guy who's completely deluded because of his position in words that he's living in this kind of matrix that excludes him from understanding what the woman at the well does understand, uh, that there's a more profound deception on the part of the teacher of Israel, who in some way may be an example of someone who has suppressed his desire or would get rid of it. What do you desire? Yeah. What do you desire? It's the first question in John, you know, that's true. It is. Um, yeah, that's really good. I have a I have a little book on that, like the questions of Jesus. Oh man, That's I didn't know that, that existed. I, I wrote a book and it got rejected by the editor. <laughs> no, no, I no, I didn't read. What? <laughs> what? I, I had no idea. I had no idea that there was a book on the questions of Jesus. <laughs> I, through, I went through and I was like, boy, I was like, I discovered this, made this wonderful discovery that I, I counted 50, you know, I, I may have I do a little stuff there, but I, I may, I got to a nice round number of 50 and it was the questions of Jesus, but the, but the, the editor ultimately said, no, it was a wonderful blog. I, I would have immediately published. Okay. Well, I think we're off to a, a running start here. I was saying before you say, it, I just had a thought that, that even you know, even to ask a question, maybe this is long, you know, long I'm not sure, but even to ask a question is, is sort of a, a, a question of desire, right? Because you want to, you know, you're, you're looking for an answer. It's true. I, I was thinking of you, Dan, a little bit when I, when I started this uh, discussion, the discussion we're having is fairly strange <laughs> for a theological discussion about the Trinity. And the way it normally would go, it would be we would float off into, oh, God can't do this and God can't do that. 
And and of course, we're not analytics. Come on. And so <laughs> the the picture that we're doing, we're saying, well, we know who God is in Christ. That is a profound starting point. I think is true then to the book that we have. So that's why I put. I was sort of thinking of you to clue you in a little bit into how bad theology can really be. Hey, glad everybody joined. Good to see everybody again. Uh, <laughs> same bat time, same bat channel. For all you bats. Uh. All right. right. Good to see everybody. Good Thank night. You, Paul. Yes. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.